You know, I know that a lot of you sit in the same seats every Sunday. I am in a different seat this morning. And I want to encourage you to try sitting in a different seat. And, and I've decided I just want the choir to follow me around everywhere I go <laughs> and to sing over my ear. You do hear things differently when you sit in different places uh, in, in the sanctuary. Will you please join me in prayer? Gracious God, we are so grateful to have some time to fellowship with one another, to sing songs of praise, to sing some of our favorite hymns, and God, to open your word together. God, right now we ask that you give us ears to listen to the ways in which your story continues to shape who we are today. And Lord, I ask that you would take my words and use them for your glory. pray these things in your name. Amen. So my parents still live in the house where I grew up. Whenever my, my family goes and visits, it's, it's always kind of this stroll back down memory lane when we go through my childhood neighborhood. I have these funny flashbacks, these funny flashbacks as we drive through the neighborhood. I can see myself skateboarding down the sidewalk, playing basketball in some of the neighbor's driveways. Or running through the yards playing hide-and-go-seek to make sure that I got to that green electrical box before I got tagged. I think of Jay, Ben, Justin, Mike, Johnny, and Steve. And all of the fun we had and all of the havoc we caused. We called our neighborhood the Nabes. And we took pride in being from the Naves. We took pride in that being our home turf. Now, most of the time, we got along wonderfully. Most of the time, we got along, along great. But like any group of boys who grow up together, who kind of come to age together, we had some epic fights as well. Sometimes they'd last a few hours, and sometimes they would go on for days and weeks. Sometimes they were just verbal, and sometimes punches were thrown. And as we grew up and as we, we went our separate ways, we've loosely stayed in touch with one another. And whenever we see each other, we reminisce, we tell stories about what it was like to grow up in the Naves. And we lament the reality that today's world doesn't quite look like it did in the early 80s. Now, I'm sure we still wouldn't agree on everything, but I'd like to think that we've matured a bit. I'd like to think that we've matured a bit. And that we'd handle our differences today a little bit more responsibly, a little bit more respectfully than we did when we were kids. Now, my guess is most of us would remember our, wouldn't remember our, our, our silly fights or our, our arguments. Instead, we'd probably say we're defined by our friendship, by our, our shared history, and the place where we grew up. Now, I... I I don't usually watch news on, on TV, uh, mostly just because my family doesn't have cable at home. But while I was at the gym this week, I, I looked up at the screen real quick. I usually watch the cooking channel, which is kind of counterintuitive, I know, at the gym to watch the cooking channel. But I, I, I usually watch the cooking channel, and I looked up to, to the news on TV, and across the, the, the headline, I don't even know what it was talking about. It just said, the state of the disunion. And I, I couldn't help but think about today's scripture, about my upbringing, about the state of the world today, and I was just thinking, man, my friends and I, we, we, we grew up, but in a lot of ways, today's world still hasn't. 
instead of being defined by what unites us, we, we, we tend to cling to the things that divide us. We tend to cling to the things that divide us, that make us different. But that doesn't have to be the case. We live in a divided world. And on the one hand, it's always been that way. But, but on the other, it seems like there's times in history where, where the division is amplified, right? Both within the church and within the outside world in general, just that the, the division is palatable, that we can feel it. The part of the story that we're in this morning reminds us that, that, that splitting, dividing, is a part of the human condition. It's always happened. And it also reminds us that God continues to work in the midst of our division. Taking us as individuals, taking us as, as people groups, and remembering us and still using us in the middle of our, our division for God's purpose. If you brought your Bibles with you, we'll be in First Kings chapter 12. And the words will also be up on the screen. Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had gone there to make him king. Now I want to stop real quick, uh, kind of catch us up. Rehoboam was Solomon's son. He was the rightful heir to the throne. So after Solomon dies, he goes to Shechem for his coronation. Whenever I hear coronation, I picture frozen. Anybody with me? It's coronation day. Do you think he woke up and said that same sort of thing? Um, Shechem was a, a special place for Israelites. It was a special place. It's the place where God appeared to Abraham and, and said, Look, I know that's all Canaan right now, but eventually that's, that's going to be where your descendants live. That's the land where everything that I promise you is going to come true. It's where Jacob built his home and it's where Joseph is buried. And after entering the promised land, it's where God's people actually committed themselves to following after the Mosaic law. <clears throat> so every time that something happened there, every time the people went to Shechem, there was a, a, a reason for it. And it reminded them of their identity. And it reminded them of God's faithfulness. So they knew, oh, we're, we're, we're going to this place. We better pay attention to what's about to happen. And then we continue to read, when Jeroboam, son of Nebat, heard this, he was still in Egypt, where he had fled from King Solomon. He returned from Egypt. Now remember, Jeroboam was the man that we read about earlier, that Nerissa read about earlier. There's Jeroboam and Rehoboam. It's, it's hard to remember, I know. Solomon noticed that, that he was a gifted leader. Rehoboam was a gifted leader. And, and so he says to him, hey, I'm going to put you in charge of all of the forced labor. You're going to be in charge of all those who work for the kingdom. And while he's, he's out, a, a, a prophet named Ahijah also notices him while he's working and tells him that Solomon's kingdom is going to one day crumble and that he'll take control, Rehoboam will take control of ten tribes. Well now, what we're reading now is when that day comes. So they, so they the head of the ten northern tribes, so, so they sent for Jeroboam, and he and the whole assembly of Israel went to Rehoboam and said to him, Your father put a heavy yoke on us, but now lighten the harsh labor and, and the heavy yoke he put on us, and we will serve you. So the ten tribes of the, the northern part of Israel felt like Solomon had been taking advantage of them, that they were taxed unfairly, that they were, they were overworked. Now, at this point, there's no mention of the idolatry that Solomon had introduced or even encouraged. 
or of how the faith of the Israelites even looked. This is just all about really the same sorts of stuff that we fight about today. Being overtaxed, overworked, underappreciated. It's the same sort of things that divide us today. Their complaints are purely physical. They're purely, purely material. They had forgotten their identity as God's chosen people. So during that celebration, this coronation, where Rehoboam is, is being crowned king in, in a place, remember Shechem, in this place of historical significance, these people come to Jeroboam to present the, or come with Jeroboam to present the case to Rehoboam. Now, anyone who had any sort of influence with the twelve tribes of Israel would have been there for this festival. They would have been there for this party. There would have been colorful tents everywhere all representing the different clans. Remember, the 12 different tribes. It would have been spread all over the valley. There would have been songs sung in different dialects. There would have been foods from different cultures. It would have been a massive party. Now, when I, I picture this sort of coronation, this, this festival at Shechem, I think of a, a massive celebration that Haley and I had the opportunity to, to be a part of while we were in Malawi. It was a, a dedication service for a mausoleum for the president's family. And, and the Malawian pastor that I served alongside with was coming to preside over the service, so he said, you better come too. There are presidents, prime ministers, diplomats, officials from Zambia, Zimbabwe, South Africa, Mozambique, and Tanzania. The food was incredible, like nothing I had ever eaten before. Everyone was wearing colorful fabrics, sharing food from their home country, it was exciting, but it was also a little unnerving. There was so much going around. It was just very, very busy. And I remember thinking and looking to my wife, looking to Haley and saying, what are we doing here? Why are we in this, this place? But it's definitely the biggest multicultural party I've been a part of. And I, I imagine that that's how this sort of service or this sort of festival in Shechem looked. Now, one of the commentaries I read said that it was during these gatherings that great crowds would come together and they'd form alliances one moment and move from an alliance one moment into a mob mentality the next. Right? So you get a whole bunch of people together. They're making, making back, back deals. They're, they're getting together. And so the excitement could potentially turn dangerous as well. Could move from something positive and peaceful to catastrophic just like that. And it's with that back set that, that they come to Jeroboam. Or come to Rehoboam. I'm getting them mixed up. Rehoboam answered, go away for three days. So he tells them to go away for three days and then come back to me. So the people went away. Rehoboam sought counsel from two groups at this point. A group of close friends and a, and a group of elders. The elders were, <clears throat> were, were a group that were familiar with his dad Solomon. And, and they said, take it easy on the people that your dad took advantage of. And his younger friends told him the exact opposite. His younger friends said, look, if you let up on the people, they're going to see you as weak. You need to double down on those taxes. You need to double down on how hard you work them. Make their life terrible. Three days later, Jeroboam and all the people returned to Rehoboam, as the king had said, come back to me in three days. The king answered the people harshly, rejecting the advice given him by the elders. He followed the advice of the young men and said, My father made your yoke easy. I will make it even heavier. 
My father scored you with whips. I will score you with scorpions. So the king did not listen to the people, for this turn of events was from the Lord to fulfill the word that the Lord had spoken to Jeroboam, son of Nebat, through Ahijah, the Shilonite. When all Israel saw that the king refused to listen to them, they answered the king, What share do we have in David? What part in Jesse's son? To your tents, Israel. Look after your own house, David. So the Israelites went home. But as for the Israelites who were living in the towns of Judah, Rehoboam still ruled over them. King Rehoboam sent out to Adoranam, who was in charge of forced labor, but all Israel stoned him to death. King Rehoboam, however, managed to get into his chariot and escape to Jerusalem. So Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. So after roughly 120 years as a united kingdom, under Saul, under David, under Solomon, now we see Israel and Judah split. The northern kingdom, Israel, was mostly governed out of Samaria. The southern kingdom, Judah, out of, out of Jerusalem. Now, the, the split marks an important moment in the history of God's people. There are moments after the initial divide where the north and the south are allies with one another, where they, where they actually work together against the countries that are coming from, from the outside. But for the most part, this marked the end of them getting along. This marked the end of them working together. Splitting definitely also made them more vulnerable to the attacks from other countries. And as we'll see in the next few weeks, it eventually led to the collapse and fall of Israel and then Judah. So there are all kinds of lessons that I think we can take away from, from this part of the story, from this, this division. But I want to quickly, quickly focus on three of them. First, and, and maybe it's a little blunt to say, but the division teaches us to be careful with what we ask God to do. To be careful with what we ask God to do. And here's what I mean by that. The Israelites, remember years before, had said, we want to be like our neighbors. We want to be like our neighbors. We want to be more powerful than our neighbors. We want a stronger government. We want more industry. We want a thriving economy. We want more than what our neighbors had and have. They said, we want that. And wanting to be like everyone else, coveting what their neighbors had, led to their downfall eventually. And as God gives them what they want, they forget their unique identity. They forget who God had created them to be as the people of Israel. Eventually forgetting to place God first in their lives. Last week I mentioned the importance of when we pray, of including the phrase, Your kingdom come, your will be done. When we constantly ask God to reveal God's will in our lives, we tend to set our priorities a little bit different. We still see all that goes around our world. We don't ignore everything that's going on in our world, but we see it through the lens of, all right, God, your will be done in our lives and in this world. Eventually, our desires and our passions and our, our goals, they line up with what God wants for our homes, for our church, for our neighborhood. We work differently. We handle conflict differently we see the world differently and more than anything we're reminded to keep what's important in front of us secondly along the same lines of being careful with how we approach god we need to be careful with what we pass down to our children 
The division of the kingdom didn't start with Rehoboam and Jeroboam. It started years before. It started years before, much, much earlier. We can point to Saul being made king and then not following through with what God had asked Saul to do. We can point to David and Bathsheba and all of the horrible things that he did to Uriah. We can point to Solomon, his longing for worldly wealth, and his desire to please people instead of pleasing God. We can point to all of those things and say, huh, huh, this is all building up to something catastrophic. And now, that catastrophe comes. In Israel's history, from generation to generation, there's a cycle that that constantly repeats itself. A ruler seeks after God and leads in a way that points people toward God for a while. Then something happens and the people are tempted. The leader's tempted by one thing or another. And then the entire kingdom ends up paying the price for that leader's fall. Now, as a, a dad, these sorts of reminders terrify me. I know I've mentioned this before, but I'm constantly asking God to forgive me for the unhealthy patterns I pass down to my kids. God, forgive me for the way I screw up my children. Now, it's not fair that they have to pay the price for the ways I fall short. But that's exactly what's happening here with Israel. It's a pattern that's continually built. So we need to be careful. We need to think about what we pass down to the generations that come after us. And thirdly, the division reminds us to be careful with who we listen to for advice. You don't have to be an expert in the political landscape of historical Israel during this time to imagine the two different groups in this story, right? The elders and Rehoboam's buddies. They're both giving him advice, and both of them are giving me advice that would probably benefit themselves. At first glance, it seems like the seasoned elders wanted him to extend an olive branch, wanted him to, to patch things over. But they also could have just wanted him to play the political game, to flatter those that had been oppressed with fancy words and to make promises that he had no intention of following through with. And the friends, they just want him to flex his power. And maybe by association, then they'll gain something as well. Rehoboam was definitely caught in this, this very difficult spot, regardless, regardless of whose counsel that he took. So we don't have time to turn to one another and, and talk about it this morning, but I'd be a little curious. When you seek counsel, who do you turn to? Who, who do you seek advice from? And why do you seek it? When you have a, a, a difficult decision to make, who do you turn to? Who do you listen to? What sorts of criteria do you have for the person or, or people you ask for help? Rehoboam's decision encourages us to evaluate, to think through who we listen to. Now, the words that Ahijah shares with Jeroboam during Solomon's reign, they, they come true, right? That, that this is what has to happen to the kingdom, This is what has to happen to the kingdom. He becomes ruler over Asher, Dan, Ephraim, Gad, Issachar, Manasseh, Naphtali, Reuben, Simeon, and Zebulun in the north. If you're looking up at the the map, it's the orange area, the ten tribes in 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 the north. And Rehoboam rules over the tribe in the south, Judah and Benjamin. 
There's a moment not too much later in 1 Kings where Rehoboam plans to attack the northern tribes. He says, all right, I'm going to go back and I'm going to get what, what is mine, what is rightfully mine. And an advisor, another advisor comes to him and says, don't, don't go fight against your brothers. Don't go and do this. This is what God wanted. This is, this is what God had planned. Go home. And he listens and he goes home. The kingdom that the people clamored for, remember? We want to be like them. We want to be like them. We want to be like them. Led to them seeking things that were different from what God had for them. The kingdom that the people clamored for had to divide them if God's plan was going to come into fruition. If they were going to turn their ways back to God. There's a moment of peace, but the division continues. The cycle continues in the generation that follows, heading, heading eventually, as we see here, to the collapse of both the kingdom in the north and the kingdom in the south. And over and over again, we read passages like we see in 1 Kings 15. Rehoboam's son, the next generation, becomes king of the southern kingdom, but he committed all the sins his father had done before him. The next, the rest of Kings, if you're to read through the rest of Kings, you see this over and over and over again. It's a cycle that continues into the exile and really throughout the rest of, of the scripture as well. One of the things that, that stuck, stuck out to me with the, the prayer of uh, affirmation of faith that we read earlier is that this continued until Jesus came. And the reality is when, when Jesus comes, the early church was trying to figure this out too. What parts of the Torah should we follow? Who should we listen to? Some say Paul. Some say Apollos. Who, who should we listen to? How should we treat others? What about our relationship with Gentiles? How, how, does, how does that look? So after Jesus comes and the early church begins taking form... These, these debates, the, the, the division, it, it continues. And we can choose today to be defined by that cycle, which is going to be there. We can choose to be defined by that cycle, or we can choose to see the bigger picture of God's plan working out in our midst, even in the midst of our division. Now, it's no secret that today we, we still live in a divided world. Many of you have heard me say this before, but I'm convinced that the best way that today's church can witness to the outside world is by learning to disagree better with one another. I'm not saying that we should shy away from our differences, that we should sweep them under the rug. Not at all. Believe it or not, some of us here this morning consider ourselves conservative. Some of us here this morning consider ourselves progressive. Some of us understand Scripture one way. Some of us understand Scripture another way. We've got contradicting views on everything from politics to the type of movies and TV shows we like to sports teams. You even accepted me as a Padre fan. <laughs> There's all kinds of different things that can divide us. But what if, what if instead of allowing our differences to define us, we were a church defined by how we share God's love in the midst of our differences? With one another, how we share God's love with one another, how we share God's love with our neighbors and with the entire world. 
That's the sort of church that I want to be a part of. My hope is you would too. Let's pray. Lord God, in a world that's full of division, may we be a community that looks, sounds, and acts different because we seek after you. May our compassion for one another be tangible, our grace palatable, and our joy noticeable. And above all else, as we go throughout our days and weeks, may we be a people who seek you first and who seek your will in every area of our life. Pray these things in your name. Amen.